Good morning, good morning. Welcome to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. You're here with Kate, Judith, Nick and Patty. Good Woo-hoo. morning. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> and it's beautiful out there. It's almost like spring. No. Yeah, it is. Yeah, considering how cold it's been. Yeah. Um, nice to have a full full team. Yay. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry about uh, last week. I had that flu that's been circling around and I, I'd been hearing all week about... Um, uh, the nine, nine, ten people that have died up oh, in Wangaratta from the uh, flu. From, yeah, from the flu. Ten, ten people. Um, this was at an elderly um, oh, home. Oh, I and, remember hearing that. But there was yes. also a a, um, a thirty year old um, man, which is my age, who passed away from the flu uh, in Melbourne um, about a week ago as well. So I sort of, I didn't want to kill anyone. Yeah. So I thought <laughs> I'd better not come inside <laughs> into yeah. into the flu. It's really yeah. thoughtful of you. I'm yeah. glad you didn't show Trying up. Trying to be a bit benevolent. <laughs> yeah. And I'm getting over something so my voice is a bit uh, yeah. deeper, deeper than usual husband. the end of winter if you didn't get it through winter you're going to get it now exactly <laughs> you've yes. both been very busy you've been up in sydney this week or yes. last week oh you my god how I is went... the marriage rally honestly it was unbelievable i mean you could hardly move you know thirty thousand people yeah that's hard to fathom i mean thirty thousand people in what kind of space it was well it know, was a, a you know town hall sydney walking, town hall yeah. but it was on the side of town hall so I kind of foolishly thought it was the front steps of town hall, and I suddenly realised no. Yeah. And then I had to, you know, fight my way through. But it was great talking to people, and then we'll hear later. I did some, you know, talked to a few people there, and so we'll hear what they said and just a little bit of one of the speeches. But honestly, it was thrilling to be yeah, there. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Did you go up there for that? Oh no! I, I had something else I needed to do. Conveniently there, yeah. And when I saw that was on, I thought, "How fantastic!" Fan- yeah, fabulous. And it was a perfect Sydney day. You know, it was, the sun was out. It was great. And wow, what a crowd! And yeah. all the pollies came out. I mean, even Bill Short and believe even it. even Bill Short <laughs> on the podium. He showed himself. <laughs> he did, and the, but of course, and you know, very supportive. Uh, but then the Greens candidate Jenny Leung, or not candidate um, member, I think for Newtown, I think. Uh, she reminded the Labour Party that in 2004 they did not support. So mm. it's but even Malcolm Turnbull has come on board now, saying he's going yeah, voting yes. Yeah. It's oh. just a no-brainer, really. But yeah, some yeah. some aren't just yet. Um, but that's later on in the show, isn't it? And so what do we have first up? You you also did a um, spoke with someone about the Rohingya yeah. refugees, and we'll be hearing what was hearing well, that, from them. That was uh, Dr. Um, Costas uh, Laotides. At the, from Deakin University, and uh, he and uh, his colleague Anthony Ware have been studying this issue for over three years now, so they spent a lot of time there writing a book on it, uh, so it'll be exciting to hear, hear more about that later. But anyway, he's um, he works in conflict resolution, and he's worked in the Middle East. He's done a lot of work with the Kurds, so kind of very experienced in these kinds of areas. He's a political scientist, so he brings that political science kind of analytical perspective to it but he's also you know looks for options out ways out so anyway yeah awesome um i've got a few guests coming up as well let's share some of those quickly for you um i've got uh jonathan pickering his postdoctoral fellow at the center for deliberative democracy talking to us about what president trump's decision with pulling out of the paris climate agreements can mean for the world for you know um for climate change um maybe it's a good thing maybe it's a bad thing so we'll kind of dissect a little bit of that Mm -hmm. um understand what the agreement is and what it's done um and also we'll have in the studio daryl 
Taylor. Um, very exciting. He's building a earthship in King Lake. Um, if you don't know what an earthship is, stay tuned. Seven forty. We'll hear from Daryl. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I really can't wait to hear about that, Kate, the Earthship. I was trying to explain it yesterday and understanding whether it was using comp or whether it was the tyres. So yeah. definitely I'll be staying tuned. Oh, good. <laughs> please, please stay tuned, Patty, throughout the show. And then we also have coming up in there Christian Liam Ruff talking about his exhibition Mind the Gap that's taken around his naughty little photo of Pine Gap and sort of the timing of that and his position um, helping the discussion around Pine Gap and Australia's involvement in that. Yeah, and we're also uh, heading for a top of 16 degrees today. And although it's um, nice and sort of a sunny morning, apparently we're expecting some thunderstorms from late this morning and snowfalls um, above 600 <laughs> oh, metres tonight. Tell me that. <laughs> 14 in a shower or two tomorrow, <laughs> and then 17 in showers increasing for Friday. So look, a, a nice wet start to spring yeah, again. Wow. There you have it. Yeah. <laughs> Nick, always the bearer of the good news with the weather. <laughs> I'm looking forward to hearing when spring really, really gets in here and be able to understand that. But first up, Judith, we have a pre-record from you. and Yes, and that's with uh, Dr. Um, Costas Lautides, who I, I just spoke about. So I caught up with him at Deakin University just yesterday, actually. And uh, I began by asking him, you know, why he and uh, his colleague Anthony Ware were interested in the Rohingya and interested in this area to start with. We decided to focus on the Rohingya because it's the only minority in Myanmar is not recognized in the constitution. Uh, the constitution of Myanmar recognizes about 136 different ethnic minorities. That's a huge number of ethnic minorities. Why don't they recognize the Rohingya? That goes all the way back to 1948 when the first constitution came in place after the independence of Myanmar. And they don't think that they have historical roots in the region. On the other hand, the Rohingya insist that they have a very long historical presence that goes way beyond uh, the colonial era. And this disagreement is showing little sign of being resolved. I wondered if the Rohingya were being discriminated against because they were Muslim. But there are many Muslim groups in Myanmar. Not only in Rakhine State, where we have, for example, the Kaman Muslims, who are not Rohingya, but we have Muslims uh, in, in other places, including Yangon as well. So it sounds like this is really an ethnic issue, not a religious issue in the eyes of the Myanmar government. Well, the interesting thing is that they try to employ the fear of the Muslim onslaught, if you like, not only the government, but don't forget that here we're talking about a, a three-side conflict. Usually in the international media we see the conflict or the friction, if you like, between the Rohingya and the state government. But we must not forget the Buddhist element in Rakhine, from Rakhine, who are ethnically different from the Burmese Buddhists. So can you just give a little bit of background to the current conflict? Is there something that has particularly exacerbated the latest round of violence that we're seeing? The interesting thing is that this time the operations, the attacks, if you like, took place just a day after the release of the Kofi Annan report on the situation in Rakhine and the recommendations that uh, the Kofi Annan committee provided to the Myanmar government about what to do or what needs to be done. Can you just tell me about the status of that committee that was chaired by Kofi Annan? Well, that was an initiative by Suu Kyi, 
the state councillor, uh, she invited, if you like, a number of uh, key authorities uh, to be chaired by Kofi Annan in order to uh, have a full investigation on the situation in Rakhine uh, with regard to the Rohingya. That took place about a year ago, the actual investigation, um, on the 25th of August. They released the report last month. They released the report. And then, hours after the release of the report, which, of course, as everyone would more or less expect, uh, would invite and would ask the Myanmar government to act and protect and try to find solutions on the question of the Rohingya. And so, initially, there was these attacks, which were orchestrated in a number of security uh, spots. And then the Burmese government retaliated and they escalated the situation, and something that one would expect from the military, uh, because they don't want to demonstrate that they are sensitive or weak or anything like that, so they would like to show that um, they can respond quickly. Did the Rohingya army uh, who attacked, Mm -hmm. did they not like the recommendations of the Annan report? Well, I haven't seen anything like that, but it's interesting that they had a very positive uh, report for their cause. And instead of trying politically to exercise pressure and ask the international community to exercise more pressure on the Myanmar government, they actually, if you like, politically committed suicide by appearing as uh, those who use violence and who instigate violence and they use violence. And this, it was a perfect example for the Myanmar government not to do anything about them. Now we are doing a little bit of uh, strategic guessing here, but one explanation of why on the, in the aftermath of such a positive response and report for their cause they decided to instigate violence. That is that because they want a very harsh reaction by the Myanmar state in order to show to the world how vicious they are and that the international community has to do something about that. A report is not enough. They need more action. So this is just one possibility. It's just one scenario. And while accusations fly back and forth, over 250,000 Rohingya people have been displaced. I asked Costas, What needs to happen? The problem is that the Rohingya at the moment don't belong to any country. Nobody wants them. The Myanmar Myanmar government don't want them in Myanmar. The Bangladesh government don't want them in Bangladesh. So they don't have a land to settle. And probably it's one of the few historical cases where there is no land, no motherland, if you like, that can be seen as home. Except in Myanmar, if they would recognize them. Precisely. Now, the problem is, and that takes us back to the recognition of ethnic minorities, and this is a wider, if you like, discussion. It's not something that will change overnight. It has to do with with the way that Myanmar has approached the composition of its population. Trying to understand your demographic in ethnic terms exclusively creates major lines of division. Rohingya are not even accepted by other minorities. Other minorities feel oppressed by the state government, for example, the Kachin or the the Wa. But if you ask them about the Rohingya, they don't like them as well, which is a little bit paradoxical because if you are oppressed, you usually you sympathize with other people who have more or less the same kind of oppression. 
It doesn't always work that way, unfortunately. It doesn't work. It doesn't work this way. But I think that it has to do with the way that for the past nearly 70 years now, uh, the demographic, the population of Myanmar has been described along ethnic terms. And now we're talking about the transition to democracy and we're talking about who is the demos, who is that people that decides collectively. And I think that they have a golden opportunity to be able to integrate, if you like, the Rohingya along these lines. Uh, they have offered to the Rohingya individual citizenship. So although they don't recognize them as a collectivity, as a group, and they don't want to incorporate them as a group into, uh, into the constitution, at the same time, for those who have evidence that they have been there and their families for a long time, the Myanmar government is prepared to give them citizenship as individuals. And the question is, why some of the Rohingya do not take that? It may be extremely difficult to put together the evidence, and maybe the international community can exercise some pressure on the Myanmar government to relax a little bit the restrictions in the paperwork that needs to be done. You know, it reminds me a little bit of Australia when um, mm. Aboriginal peoples were allowed to have individual citizenship if they gave up their families and their um, Aboriginality, basically, but they weren't allowed to have contact with their families. It just reminds me of that kind of thing and, and is therefore unacceptable to Rohingya because it's a kind of loss of their identity and history. I agree. From my perspective, even, even the citizenship uh, is problematic, but at least is one step towards recognizing an evolving ethnic group. So what could be seen is that, okay, even if we accept that at the moment they are not an ethnic group, ethnic groups are not a static social category. It evolves over time and it changes over time. It is a dynamic aspect of human existence, both at the individual level and at the collective level. Even if we accept that at the moment Myanmar can grant them individual citizenship, the least that Myanmar can do is to recognize that there is an evolving ethnic community there, an emerging ethnic community. And this probably will take a little bit of the pressure, but this again, from my perspective, is a temporary step to provide uh, some safe haven for the Rohingya, to have a land to, to be able to settle. The wider problem is how you define your demos in a democracy. So Myanmar has to think, if you like, long and hard about who and how they're going to define who is the demos, especially when you have so many different ethnic groups on the ground. And, and as you said earlier, the, the Rohingya are not the only people that are affected. Of course not. There are other minorities who um, are oppressed. They have been uh, at war with the state government for many years, the Karens, the Kachins, the Wa. In the short term, the escalation of violence has to stop from the, from the Myanmar side, persecuting innocent people. Mid-term solution should be a general agreement between the Rohingya and the Myanmar government about citizenship, individual citizenship, the acceptance of an emerging ethnic group by the Myanmar government. All that is not a, there are not easy discussions in a, in a country which is in transition. Don't forget that 20% of the seats in the parliament are reserved by the army. So it's not a full democracy at the moment. It is a democracy 
at an embryonic stage and they have to be careful, they have to treat carefully uh, but at the same time they must not discriminate, they must not oppress. I'm wondering when you see these um, television stories, when you hear these stories about what's happening as a person who's been there many times and, and met the people, how do you feel when you, when you see those stories? Well, they're very distressing. They're very distressing. You can see people who um, you, you may have known and now they don't exist anymore. Or you may see people who have talked to and now they are behind bars in prison for political crimes. You know, the political scientists do have to do this job and they do have to engage in conflict zones. It's not an easy exercise. And every time you need to redefine yourself and you have to keep your distance, because otherwise you are absorbed by it. And uh, that was um, Dr. Costas Lautides from Deakin University talking about the situation of the Rohingya people um, in Myanmar and, you know, what possible solutions may exist. And I think the thing I learned from talking to him yesterday was just how complicated the situation is and how much there still is to know for, for everyone. <laughs> Join Ruminations on Thursday, September 14 at 12pm to 1pm as we head down the river to South Bank. For this special broadcast, we'll be handing over the mic to people currently experiencing homelessness and staying in crisis accommodation. So tune in on Thursday, September 14, between 12 and 1 p.m. as Ruminations goes to South Bank and hear the voices and stories of people currently experiencing homelessness in Melbourne. Get a healthy dose of anti-nuclear, peace and sustainability issues on The Radioactive Show. 10am Saturdays on 3CR Community Radio, 855 on your AM dial. And also podcast and web streamed on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. The Radioactive Show, where every bit of exposure makes you stronger. Um, President Trump's recent decision to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement has certainly sparked some concern for the international community. Um, and we're talking with Dr. Jonathan Pickering, postdoctoral fellow at the Centre for Deliberative Democracy um, and Global Governance at the University of Canberra. Hi, Jonathan, are you there? Hi, yes, Kate. Thanks for having me on. Morning, Jonathan. Hi. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Okay, great. Thanks. <laughs> um, we can all hear you, except I can't. Kate's got the lovely <laughs> headphones got, again, so got, she was making some great gold, faces the across, the, across the desk. <laughs> no worries. Awesome. Um, Jonathan, can you just tell us, you know, thanks for chatting to us um, this, this early of the morning about politics. Um, firstly, just for some background to the Paris Agreement, um, is it, an, it was an agreement negotiated by 196 parties in, um, in Paris in 2015, mm -hmm. certainly to deal with climate change, mitigation and adaptation. Um, and just, I guess, to highlight or pause for a moment its significance, um, it was the first time since superpowers US and China um, had both agreed to a climate agreement, which I just think is phenomenal. Is that right? 
That's that's right. Yeah, that was one of the the really significant things about the the agreement. Um, the the previous major climate agreement, the Kyoto Protocol, which is um, signed about twenty years ago, um, only required um, developed countries to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, um, and this was. Um, uh, one of the main reasons why the US decided not to participate in the Kyoto Protocol. Paris Agreement, as you say, involves not only um, the industrialised countries but also the major emerging economies like um, China, India, uh, Brazil, um, Indonesia. And so the idea is that the, the Paris Agreement um, is, is universal um, in, its, in its membership. And this is really the only way that it will be possible to tackle climate change, to avoid um, dangerous um, temperature rise, because um, greenhouse gas emissions um, in developing countries have been rising so significantly in, in recent years. So every country needs to, to do their part. And the, the Paris Agreement has a, a set up where countries make pledges every five years um, about how they're going to uh, reduce their, their pollution. And the idea is that peer pressure um, should help um, to, to, to bring global emissions down over time. Peer Obviously, pressure hasn't bit, quite worked sorry? here, has it? <laughs> peer pressure hasn't quite worked here. Not, n- not yet, but, but neither, neither did the, the Kyoto pro- uh, Protocol approach. Yeah. Um, so uh, the, the, the Paris Agreement um, is different in, in a number of ways, partly because it has that increased uh, buy-in um, from a, a large range of countries. And we have seen um, China and India um, take pretty significant steps um, to, uh, to reduce, uh, well, China in particular, um, looking at, at scaling back its, its coal usage. It has um, pretty major concerns about um, domestic um, pollution from, from coal and um, smog in cities. And so th- there are steps that are, that are being taken and we've, we see now uh, in the last few years much greater momentum around renewable energy worldwide. So the, the prices of wind and solar are coming down. And so this should, in principle, help um, the, the agreement to succeed. Yeah. But, um, but there's, the, there's still a concern about political will in countries like uh, the US and um, in Australia as well. So, yeah. you know, so there's, there are limits to what an international agreement can do. Um, there's uh, pol- domestic politics always come in, in, in some way or another, but the, the Paris Agreement so far has been a, a rallying call for a number of countries and also for other governments and, and businesses um, that are committed to acting on climate change. Jonathan, these agreements, they're meant to be binding. Isn't that the p- point of oh, like countries coming together and agreeing on something? Why, why is Trump even allowed to pull out of an agreement like this? Well, any country can choose to join or leave an international treaty. Um, it's part of the way that international relations are, are set up, that, uh, you know, that, that countries retain their, their national sovereignty and they can choose whether to, whether to cooperate or not. Some, some agreements have stronger provisions that, that 
essentially try to punish those countries that don't agree, uh, that don't join. Um, and there have been calls for, for that sort of thing in a, in a climate agreement, but so far countries haven't been able to, to agree on it. Um, but international agreements can work in a number of ways. They don't always have to be, um, be binding to have some effect. So, for, for example, you may have more political declarations like the, the Millennium De Declaration, the Millennium Development Goals, um, which did help to, uh, to to bring about a boost in, in global aid, um, despite not being uh, binding. Mm -hmm. The Paris Agreement, the the main the main parts of the agreement that actually are binding are for countries to to set out um, a plan for how they're going to to reduce their emissions. They're not um, binding in that. Um, countries don't have to achieve what they what they set out in their plans, and that's certainly been a criticism that the the Paris Agreement lacks teeth in that way. Mm. But even so, that was the price for getting countries on board like um, China and, and India, who had originally said, "Well, look, it's up to industrialised countries to to do the the hard work." You know, um, they've. They're the ones who, who polluted um, back from the Industrial Revolution for hundreds of years, so they should it should be their, their job to fix it up. Mm, absolutely. But, but yeah, think... this is a price that they had yeah. to be paid. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think Trump's motives, I guess, are here? Is it simply to remove all climate responsibility or just to step away from a global agreement and just maybe become more centric to America and, you know, their policies? Well, I, I think there is a there is a, a sort of anti UN sentiment yeah. that's that's there, and and that's a, been a feature of the the US Republican Party for for a long time, um, as has climate change denial. Uh, There's still a, a badge of honour for for many in the US Republican Party. Unbelievable, so, unbelievable, you know, it's just unbelievable. Well, sure. I mean, at a, at a time when in just the last few weeks we've seen two major hurricanes hit the, the US coastline and um, scientists have, have pointed to the, the increased risks from warmer waters of you know, more intense hurricanes, you would think that, uh, that, that uh, politicians would be uh, rethinking um, what the, the risks of climate change, but that doesn't seem to be happening yet. So, so I think the pandering to the US Republicans was was a motivation for Trump but as you say there's also the the nationalist aspect of sticking up for for US workers so that was a theme of of Trump's presidential campaign and he's carried on through with that in uh, his time as president so his argument was that the Paris Agreement essentially takes jobs away from Americans and shifts them offshore because the US has all these responsibilities to reduce its emissions, other countries don't. Mm. Now, those arguments don't really stand up. Um, the, the agreement, as I, as I mentioned, does, um, does have obligations for other countries. And to be honest, the, the US target was not particularly strong. So it didn't require a huge amount of effort on the part of the US. And in any case, it was more likely that acting on climate change would help to reinvigorate uh, manufacturing jobs and uh, in renewable industries. 
So wind wind jobs are already um, there are more more people working in the wind industry than there are in coal mining in the U.S. And so things things are already changing. And if the U.S. had stuck with its commitments, mm, it would actually be better for better for U.S. workers. Yeah, uh, particularly over the long term. I would I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> but you're also seeing in the U.S. now um, some independent state or states acting independently of the U.S. backing out of the Paris Agreement and looking towards renewables and changing their industry towards renewables and gearing themselves up for that. Um, how does that work in terms of the US's agreement they've gotten out, but now also they are reducing their emissions th- through this? Well, yeah, there there is a, a lot going on in the US beyond what happens uh, just at the, at the federal level. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, states like California and New York have committed to to, to keep reducing their emissions regardless of what happens at the federal level. Some of these states have their own emissions trading schemes and so on, their own regulations for um, for um, you know, cleaner transport and so on. And a lot of cities and businesses are taking action too. So so that's been really encouraging. There's a there's a coalition called We Are Still In of, uh, of a number of these organisations and governments that are saying, well, we're still committed to the Paris Agreement even if um, the, the federal government isn't. So that's important, but there have been some studies that have shown that in order for the US to meet its Paris target, federal policies like the Clean Power Plan uh, would have had to would have to be followed through. So once the federal government is out of the picture, it makes it that much harder for the US as a whole to meet its Paris targets. Mm. And so it's unclear whether the the backlash to Trump's decision to withdraw is actually going to be enough to, to fill that gap. And do you think other countries, how do they get impacted by a decision like this? Will we see more people kind of do that community, kind of get up and, and act and, and um, more renewables kind of come into the market? Or will you see some countries um, back away as well? I think that there's likely to be a mix of reactions. We've, we've already seen that China and India and the EU have said they are still committed to the agreement. Uh, so far, no countries have actually said they will um, specifically said they will do do more. India has has um, indi- it sort of um, suggested in that direction, but the EU mm-hmm. has said, "Look, we're just going to stick with our our targets mm-hmm. as is." And so that's um, then there are countries like Australia, Russia, and so on that are really sitting on the fence on climate change and. The U.S. decision to withdraw is, in my view, more likely to discourage those countries and give cover for them to backtrack on, on climate change. That's more at the, at the international level of uh, national governments. But as, as far as um, communities go, well, I, I would I would hope that that communities in other countries. Um, have some encouragement for what's happened in in the US that we have seen this this groundswell of support for for action yeah. and you know we're in some ways in a in a similar situation in Australia where the federal government is pretty reluctant to to act um, it hasn't put in place 
um, policies that are going to be sufficient to, to meet its Paris target. And so, well, um, it's going to be important for, uh, for organisations and individuals to do what they can to well, push the government, to, federal government, to do more, but also to take action themselves. Absolutely. Jonathan, um, I just want to thank you so much for talking to us on 3CR and sharing your insights, certainly something that we'll all be staying close-eyed looking at with you know, climate change being a big topic right now. Um, and at least our government hasn't pulled out. <laughs> uh, yes, not so, not so far. Not no, so indeed. far, yeah. I, awesome. I should mention as well um, that I'll be holding a seminar in... Uh, in Melbourne on the 28th of September at the University of Melbourne, the Climate and Energy, Energy College. So, yes, you're interested in And we hearing. can find that, can't we? Um, that's that's right. So, uh, it's, uh, you can Google the Climate and Energy College. Um, there's a, a registration page. Um, so, yeah, pre-registration is essential. Um, uh, yeah, I encourage you to come along. I'll be presenting some some new research on work on the on Paris Agreement that I've done with a few college, uh, colleagues, and we're looking at well, um, is this a, a matter of uh, the Kyoto Protocol um, all over again, um, or um, are, are we in a new situation as as far as global climate politics is concerned? Absolutely, great. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for chatting okay. to us. Cheers. Okay. All right. Bye. 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 Um, next up, we have Daryl Taylor in the studio, um, who is a social and environmental justice leader, consultant, um, you know, advocate, um, and a survivor of Black Saturday fires in 2009, uh, where he lost his mud brick home and, of course, as we know, much of the community up there. Um, eight years later, after that statewide tragedy, um, Daryl is on his way to build the first council-approved earthship in Victoria. Um, in King Lake. Hi, Daryl. <laughs> Thank you g'day, for joining us. G'day, Kate. <laughs> um, I guess we should start with what what's an earthship. Um, it's kind of become a bit of a buzzword now. I, well, I, I feel like in the community, quite a few people know kind of what it is, but let's have a run through um, what's an earthship and I guess what's your earthship. Yeah, I suppose a lot of people kind of look at particular designs that were developed in Taos in New Mexico at 9,000 feet above sea level where it gets down to about minus, uh, you know, 30 degrees and gets up to about 50 degrees and, and say that's an earthship, which it is, but really earthships are based on principles. And so they look very different depending on the climate and the topography and the place where they're built. So... Uh, our worship in King Lake is very much a response to a sclerophyll rainforest at 2,000 feet above sea level. So a very different environment, about typically about five degrees cooler than Melbourne um, and also very wet. Um, for most of the time, you know, it's green, like even during the extended El Nino drought um, leading up to Black Saturday, um, King Lake was pretty green. While, and if you mm. drove off our mountain... Everywhere else was really dry and dusty. So I tend to think about earthships as around nine different aspects. So the first aspects would be eco-resilient. So for our, <coughs> our build in particular, it's a fire-resilient mm. building. So we've built it underground on the south side, which is where the steep escarpment is. So the escarpment's about 70 degrees, and that's all um, National Park to the south. So... 
<coughs> our national park is pyrophilic bush. So, yeah. you know, when the fire conditions are right, it will burn like crazy and it'll fly up the mountain. So we've kind of designed it so it's like a berm. Um, and so the berm allows the fire to flow, like water flows over the top or air would flow over the top. Can I just share a unique part of that part of the design as well? When you're on the street, the street is looking at the south facing. So a conventional house, you'll have a door looking towards the street um daryl's house has the like just a mountain looking towards the street so that the entrance is kind of on the other side so you don't see it from yeah you know it's a very it's flipped <laughs> yeah it's kind of like i've turned my back on society <laughs> yeah, kind of like that <laughs> you have to walk around to get yeah yeah um yeah and you won't <coughs> won't even see <coughs> that mound once that that's all planted out so that'll be like just rich with food and uh and local plants so just a few of the other principles um you know comfort is one of the main principles because it's built underground it's like cooper pd it's cool um during summer and it's warm during winter and uh, there's a heat bank wall which holds heat so um, it'll absorb more heat when it's really hot and it'll let heat out when it's cool mm. uh, all the water like king lake um, has no reticulated water or sewage. We only got sealed roads and electricity in my lifetime. So you kind of have to be autonomous up at King Lake. Mm. So even though people might have different political views, when they're at the pub, they talk about water and they talk about waste mm. and how you manage all that kind of stuff because that's what we have to do. So we've got rainwater capture and storage rainwater. We're going to have four water tanks. So the house is going to be surrounded by water tanks. Mm. Um, and I'm going to use a... Fireproof solar ones, I'm well, guessing. Yeah, yeah. We're going to use a so <laughs> underground, underground. Uh, and fireproof, but we're going to use a solar pump. So I'm going to pump the water around the house. So the house is actually going to be in the middle of a bit of a vortex. Um, the electricity, again, off-grid, solar, wind and geothermal. Uh, we're going to have contained sewerage. So, again, you've got to manage it all yourself. So we've got three systems for for sewerage, including reed beds and worm, you know, worms and things like that. All the grey water is going to go through garden beds in a greenhouse on the north side. So the north side's all glass and it's going to be really warm. Um, and so we're going to have tropical food growing there which will be fun um and we're going to re you know, we reuse garbage in building the place so my motto for the build's been waste streams equals supply chains so i've just met up with a whole lot of old guys who collect stuff and i find if i go and sit down with them and have a beer for about three hours and just <laughs> really get to know them. And then I can kind of go back to them at any time and say, I need one of those. Yeah. And they know how to get them. And I've just been really, really lucky. One of the guys had to sell his property at fairly short notice. And so he just was like giving stuff away because he needed to get it off the block. And so, you know, I've been really, really fortunate. There's been a lot of luck. But Melbourne is full. Like, it's an industrial city. There is oh, so much stuff everywhere. There's so everywhere. much stuff. So uh, you, there's, like, 
just imagine all the waste streams every time they knock a building down and build a new building. Yeah. There's so many houses to be built from all that stuff. I know. That if you're a good trader, you would be driving around collecting, scavenging. That's so what we've been yeah. scavenging or gleaning, I suppose is yeah. how I call it. We're doing food production, so all the greenhouse is going to be food. We're also looking at like an aquaponic system as well. So I'm pretty into eating a bit of fish every now and then. So Totally. Uh, yabbies are one of my favourites. I grew up on the Murray yabbying, kind of like Huck Finn country it was, and so we were always fishing and doing stuff like that. Um, and for me, the eighth principle that I really love about Earthships is just creativity and innovation. So um, since beginning, we've had 37 innovations. So we kind of, my dad's an architectural draftsman, so he mocked up the first lots of plans, but he kept them loose enough so that we could keep evolving the design. So we've had, yeah, just, I've had people on the property from every continent and they've all brought their own rich traditions of building to um, King Lake. So we've, wherever possible, we've just said yes to mm. whatever people have said. Yeah. It, sound, it sounds so inspiring uh, what you're talking about. And I love the idea of old guys who collect stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and I can kind of imagine you all sitting down at the pub. But it's, and it's wonderful that, you know, you're taking, you're using things that are being thrown away because mm. it's such a waste but if say i wanted tomorrow to have my very own earthship are there i mean are, are you set up to assist other people or is there an organization that's doing that good question so just my last principle is just community development wonderful i'll lead into that so mm. we've worked with danny wolf chambers and agari natural builders and so they've been, like I met up with them at the Eltham Farmers Market through a mutual friend, Eli Becker. And, and mm. what's been great about working with Danny and her crew is uh, I have a 16-year-old daughter, so it's just been wonderful for her to see and know that women can do this mm. sort of stuff. So this is a house built largely by women and women's leadership. And what's been fantastic about that is that they do building differently. It's not a hierarchical system. There's no dominant alpha male at the top of some <laughs> pyramid. They kind of, they get up in the morning and, you know, we all collectively cook breakfast on a roster for one another. They stay over on the place. So there's a community built for a month while we run a, run a workshop. I think we start with yoga and then meditation and there's lots of gentle warming up with each other and check-ins just to make sure everyone's okay and yeah so it's just a this is the building side just to tell our community out there that's a building so this is very different to you know i mean i i I won't disparage kind of mainstream building but like volume builders there's enormous pressure to get stuff done incredibly quickly and you know they'll use a whole range of means to you know add make that happen as quickly as possible so this is a deeply caring building so that's what I've loved about it it's just deeply caring so you were asking about can you get it done tomorrow well this has taken me a year now um, so we're just ticking over a year it'll probably take me about 15 months to finish the build I'll see you after the show but Agari Natural Builders is where I've been if this is an ad for Agari and Danny's um, team it's just they've they come from all over the world they work in Canada New Zealand um, building these homes and they're just extraordinarily good at it and it's great 
fun. You mentioned at the start that this was the first approved Earthship, mm. council-approved Earthship in Victoria, which I was sort of surprised by because I've heard about the idea for, for a long time. Um, how hard is it to get a well, council approval well, for an Earthship? I think it's the first one in Victoria all up. Like, we don't mm. have any legal ones in Victoria. Um, so... Getting it council approved is extremely difficult. So councils are under enormous pressure from the state government and also their elected representatives not to take any risks. Exactly. And so even the most green councils, uh, you know, with a long history of sustainable building, wouldn't be allowed to pass this build. So uh, I had to go independently to an independent building surveyor to get the building approval. Uh, so we've got planning approval from council, but the building approval was from an independent building surveyor. Sounds expensive, <laughs> dare I say. No, look, the guy who's our build, Jeff, our building from Construction uh, Concepts, he is absolutely fantastic. He's been a dream. He's a grandfather. You know, he's not kind of ticking off ordinary buildings that are built you know in new development areas at mass scale so the big mass produced houses that all look the same and face the wrong way etc etc he's not into that so he approved mongolian yurts in flowerdale in a in a in a bushfire vulnerable area um like king lake um so he's really up for doing stuff differently and jeff's just been a joy to work with um daryl let's share um so Earthships, you mentioned at the start as well, that they come from New Mexico. So the founder or the kind of radical architect is Mike Reynolds, who came up with these designs back in, I'm not sure, but years ago, right? Oh, you start 30. like the, you know, the big flowering of the 1970s. That's yeah, where this no, it sounds, of... sounds very much like the whole Earth catalogue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was totally reading that. Um, and, you know, the Earthships have changed and evolved, like you've mentioned, through um, different countries and everything like that. But... Excitingly, um, Mike has been kind of with you on this journey as well, um, in contact, um, even when you wanted to get it done, uh, started the building process five years ago, is that right? And now he's coming back to Australia. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I first found out about um, Earthship Biotecture and Earthships in Friends of the Earth bookstore. You know, Friends of the Earth once had yep, a bookstore exactly. and it was like in the mid-90s and I'm just doing some work with Cam and had a look at it and it's like oh my gosh this is so fantastic and so when we ended up in king lake uh, you know we just had a little bit of a little tiny mud brick house and there was always that opportunity to extend and so yeah that's just ticking away in the back of my mind and then when the fires came uh you know in terms of what would be the best design to build in victoria and where we live king lake's the most fire vulnerable town in the most fire vulnerable region in the world uh, so you know this was the perfect thing so Mike came came out in 2009 uh, very interested in disasters there's a disaster Michael turn up because he reckons he's got a really good product Concept. to offer mm. or a suite of ideas so I went and saw him in a uh, BMW Edge RMIT I think ran a state of design conference and he was one of the speakers at that so we had a bit of a chat and then I followed him up to Bendigo where he did another presentation and invited him to come back out again. And I went over and spent a couple of days at the Earthship community in Taos, New Mexico, mm. and that kind of cemented that he would come back again. So I hosted him for a kind of a statewide tour in Victoria. So we went to a whole lot of rural areas as well as doing 
some gigs in Melbourne and he did a gig as part of that at the Sustainable Living Festival. Mm. Um, again, at BMW Edge, he climbed the wall, which was hilarious. He so physically climbed? He physically climbed the wall and he's not a young man. Uh, so <laughs> it was very, very funny. He's a very animated speaker. Um, so he's, he's actually coming, we're doing a workshop up at King Lake and we're also doing a, a major uh, public lecture at the Coburg Town Hall, so up on Bell Street, uh, on Sunday the 15th of October. So that'll be from, I think, doors will open from like five, but the lecture itself will run from six until nine. So you're in for a deep dive. He's going to uh, really take you through all things Earthship and particularly talk about Earthship communities. So not just individual houses, but um, like an eco village of Earthships as well. Yeah. And so that's Coburg Library, October 15th. People can find that, I think, on Earthship Town Biotechnology. Coburg. Ta- Town Hall, Town Hall yeah. sorry. Um, it's a big venue. Big venue, awesome. Yeah. And on the 14th, he's out at King Lake and people can also yeah. pay through Agari Farm right. to, um, if you're interested in seeing the, the Earthship and having a, a talk and a walkthrough by Daryl and also Mike, um, yeah. October 14th. And if you really want to get your hands dirty, there's a few more builds coming up, isn't there? Um, workshops. So we've got workshops running, you know, just the idea of the workshops is, you know, we're, we're building something that's obviously unique. And so it's an opportunity just to slow it down a little bit and allow other people to participate and learn. And it's all learning by doing like this is really a bush mechanic art and it's a deep bush mechanic art where you're kind of looking at pattern recognition and 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 creativity and so physically using your hands bit of a foreign thing I know but (laughs) physically using your hands to do stuff is what the workshops are all about and your feet because you make cob by like stomping Mm. with your feet and we've got I reckon we had, if 40 people participate in a cob workshop, I know I've got 80 souls in my wall. <laughs> <That's how> you, <laughs> lovely. Um, Daryl, we could talk to you about Earthships, natural buildings and all things community and progressive, but um, we're at the end of this segment. So thank you so much for coming into the studio. No worries, Kate. Awesome. Fortieth anniversary celebrations, Anarchist World This Week live broadcast, Wednesday, twentieth September, ten a.m. to eleven a.m. Unitarian Church, one hundred and ten Grey Street, East Melbourne. Doors open nine thirty a.m. Live broadcast, discussion, lunch provided by the West Papuan community. Fifteen dollars for the lunch. Join us. Fortieth anniversary celebrations of the Anarchist World This Week on Community. Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial. Hello? Listen, I had a great idea. Male chauvinist pig versus hairy leg feminist. You're still a feminist, right? I'm a tennis player who happens to be a woman. The battle you've all been waiting to see. The battle of the sexes. You want to see it, right? Then get along and support 3CR at the Palace Withgarth Cinemas, 89 High Street, Northcote, on Thursday, October 5th, from 6.30pm, for a screening of Battle of the Sexes. We're offering the men's winner eight times what you're offering the women's winner. The men are simply more exciting to watch. It's just biology. (laughs) 
story of the infamous tennis match between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs. Tickets are $25 and $20 concession. You can purchase online at 3cr.org.au, direct from the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, or by phoning 9419 8377 during business hours. All funds raised go to keeping 3CR on air. Battle of the Sexes screening, Thursday, October the 5th from 6.30pm. Does she have the nerve? Subscribe to your award-winning independent community radio, bringing you coverage of community issues and events. This is Beta Base Camp. Welcome to the Little Red Tulangi Treehouse. As you said, I'm going to the East West Tunnel ticket, as it usually does, starts at 5.30am. Uh, the Lincoln Melbourne Authority have come here in the middle of the night and set up another drill rig here on Gold Street. The police were pretty keen to defend that with all their resources this morning. And I think for Australians... In order to know ourselves, really fully know ourselves, in order to mature, we need to understand Aboriginal culture, we need to embrace it and realise that in coming here, you're now part of the longest continuing culture in the world. We need your support. Subscribe today. Call 9419 8377 now. Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Well, it's not too late, and we still need your support. Donate now by calling 9419 8377 or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post us a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. Is that a bit high? Are they you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. As you can hear, we're here uh, with Nick, Judith, Kate, Patty, and, and now Lucy. <laughs> um, Thanks for joining us, Lucy. So just to take us into, I guess, a bit of alternative news and community announcements, um, we've got Lucy Bradley um, in the studio from Laneway Learning. Uh, you're a co-founder and coordinator of the Melbourne, um, I guess, uh, collective. I'm just really interested in the whole the whole thing. Laneway Learning is a community platform that brings together awesome events, workshops, um, talks, a variety of classes, educational kind of um, presentations and things. Um, and it came about in 2012 by a group of friends. Um, tell us about how it evolved and um, and what inspired the kind of collective. Yeah, so um, we started Lingua Learning, it was me and a couple of friends, and it was really because we loved the idea of learning but thought that often it was too dry or it was too difficult to keep learning after you'd finished uni or outside of work or it was, you know, expensive, time-consuming. Um, so we really wanted to fill this gap so that people can come and just learn for fun to yeah. meet other people and to, like, meet each other from their own community and learn from people from their own community. So that was kind of where it started, and it started really as a very, very small idea that we didn't really know if it was going to work or not and it just grew bit by bit I think Melburnians are so excited mm. to put themselves out there learn something new meet new people that it really just took off and it's grown bit by bit and um yeah, yeah now it's flourishing how has it taken off so how how what's the network you guys got quite a big is it just and just emails and um online yeah so um we run about 15 classes a week but um Really, there's a very, very, very small team behind it. So it's a lot of emails. So um, I spend most of my time, like you said, I, I coordinate all the classes. So I spend all my time emailing potential new teachers, helping them work out what their 
uh, class is going to be about. Like a lot of people haven't taught very much before or, you know, so I sort of guide them through, make it a process and mm. um, look after the website, put all our classes online so people can find out about our classes via our newsletter and online. But then all of the learning is face to face in one room. It's very social, fun and friendly. Yeah. So I, I've done a few um, I've done a few workshops. I remember I did sort of propagation um, stuff and some planting sort of things that I was interested in because certainly I, I don't have that background. And I thought, oh, this is great. Just an hour or, hour or two simple workshop for really like quite low price. What are some of the, um, the popular reoccurring workshops that just keep coming back? <laughs> so like you said, plants <laughs> yes. at the moment are really popular. So we've got a few yeah. different things like propagation and uh, Cockadamas, which are the little oh, yes. moss balls with I plants love, coming out. I of them. made some, but some of them died. <laughs> yeah, I've made a few that have died as well. Um, jewelry as well at the moment. So we've got a couple of classes making silver rings or silver pendants. That's always jam packed. Mm. Um, but like I said, Melburnians are so interested in lots of different things. I think people put themselves out there and think, oh, I've, I've not really heard of this thing before. I don't know if I like it, but I'm going to try it. Yeah. Mm. And where where are the classes held? And um, so we've got. Uh, multiple different venues around the city so we've got about four different places in CBD plus a couple in some of the suburbs but it might be uh, a cafe or a bookshop or a gallery just really um, places that maybe are underused in the evenings and we want to take people around their city to learn little new places yeah yeah and it's a great if people want to I mean if they want to join a class or a workshop they just jump on the website Mm -hmm. and what about if people have an idea like hearing this um, now they're like I can teach how to sew dresses I don't know that just came up so if you no, that's, that's, that's great. Workshop, yeah, right? that's totally a workshop. Um, if people are interested, they can just hop on our website, which is melbourne.lanewaylearning.com. Um, and along the top, there's a little menu, and one of the tabs says Want to Teach. And if they go to that, awesome. there's more information about how to teach and how to get in touch with us. Great. And we'll post those things for sure on our website. Um, Lucy, short and sweet, but thank you so much for talking to us at 3CR. Oh, no problem. Thanks awesome. for having me. Thank you. Um, you're listening to 3CR, Wednesday 13th uh, September. Nice fine morning, and would just take us continue taking us into alternative news. Well, um, actually, if we stay yeah. on that for a moment, I, I remember a, a few years ago there was a, another project called Melbourne Free University that you might have heard of. Yeah, oh, that's still yeah, a, yeah. It's still, still going. going. Yeah. yeah, I was just having a look at the website, but um, uh, they I assume do a, a similar sort of thing. It's a one hour more lecture. Yeah, um, there's a more like big group lectures, whereas ours are small groups. Yeah, um, yeah, more like hands on workshops. It's good to see. Mm. Yeah, I was joined up to MFU for for a while and always seeing that. And they have like lecture series, so they do like six weeks of like a, a theme, and then they talk over, you know, the whole six weeks. Yeah, they're quite big, but also a very awesome way to um, get educated when you're not, you know, you finish uni, you finish education, you just want to do simple things. Melbourne's a hub of that kind of stuff, isn't it? Um, yeah, it's such good ways to stay involved. Good on you, acting on an impulse and creating something like that. Thanks. It's good. It's good to see people still engaging. Uh, some some news or events. I've got an event coming up if you want to hear about. I always want to hear about, about your events. Yeah. <laughs> so next next Wednesday, uh, one week away from now, uh, the Australian Psychedelic Society will be screening the movie A New Understanding: The Science of Psilocybin. Uh, it's a documentary that looks into uh, some of the recent research that's been made um, and and uh, a lot of the the, the fi- fantastic findings that have been um, found about uh, psilocybin and its potential use uh, for a, v- a variety of uh, medical. Uh, purposes, a lot of them revolving around mental health. Um, but there's also another side as well, which is psilocybin seems to be something that could be used uh, for healthy people to improve um, certain things. So that film is being screened 
next Wednesday at the State Library of Victoria starting 6pm. Tickets are available at psychedelicsociety.com.au and it will be followed by a forum uh, panel discussion. Um, Should be announcing the panellists today as well, uh, but we will have some legal professionals uh, and some some people that uh, research in the uh, the drugs field uh, talking about the inappropriate scheduling uh, in the first place of uh, of psychedelics like psilocybin uh, in Australia in the 1970s. and just just finding out about the harm that prohibition has caused on people. Mm. Yeah, and I noticed a story about same-sex marriage survey anti-vilification laws, which should pass this week in Parliament, and to just cover the period of the um, campaign, the postal vote on same and gay marriage, same-sex marriage. So I think it's just so ironic that the government is introducing same-sex marriage survey anti-vilification laws when they've set up something that allows vilification to occur, which has been the big criticism of it. So um, anyway, what they're saying is that people will have to identify actually who has posted the vilification and they're Mm. up for quite a hefty fine. Anyway, I think it's just something to watch, but how bizarre. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And also just briefly on the front pages, um, (laughs) on The Age, the Australian and the Financial Review, all kind of speaks about our our energy crisis. And the Fin Review says PM's new baseload plan and kind of talks about um, the abolishment of the the Finkel Review um, and replacing it with um, much, will place much greater emphasis on actual coal-fired baseload power and possibly a slower transition to renewable energy. That's the financial review. But then you flip over to the age and it actually talks about um, a surge in renewables. And so I don't know what's going on. Don't ask me. But this is obviously from the um, the energy crisis that we're seeing a little bit about lately. The Australian energy market operator, um, AEMO, says that the national grid hasn't seen enough investment in um, new generation. Um, and that's particularly dispatchable energy. So energy that can be switched on or off. Um, so the coal-fired stuff. Um, as, so as new newer forms of generation like wind and solar are added to the grid, older forms like coal are being phased out. Um, of course, in the long term, this is good news. Um, but in the short term, there may be some shortfalls in the supply. So that's kind of where we're seeing our you know problems right now. And so New Matilda did an, a, a report on this um, and kind of spoke out about how... Um, Uh, The AEMO report, you know, is not saying that we'll be having blackouts in the southern states this summer, but it is saying that supply will just be tight um, and that our previous government, obviously Labor, had a whole bunch of, you know, um, policies in place to to kind of um, counter this. But then when um, Abbott kind of got in, he scrapped all of that and that's kind of left us in where we are at now. So if you want to see more on that, it was quite a a good um, article, New Matilda, yeah, power for power's sake. Big time. It sounds like hearing a lot of the newspapers, tabloids, contentions coming through there with with the energy and where they stand. But on the Saturday paper, to distill a little bit of the hyperball that's been around North Korea and America, it led with, it's possible this man isn't crazy. Um, Martin McKenzie wrote the article and it just sort of talks about the North Korea's intentions to state its economic and nuclear status is very clear and sort of asking the question of where America stands on it and why it stands and why is it's sort of, I don't know, 
yeah. stirring the ants' nest. It's in a, a very, way. very interesting topic, and um, you know, not as straightforward as it's sometimes represented to be. There's a, um, a man that I'm trying to follow up on. He, he's out of Australia at the moment. Um, he's, he was actually in North Korea recently. I'm hoping to get him in for an interview to talk about some of the uh, complexities because it often gets made out as a goodies versus baddies kind of situation. And it's just it's just not that simple. Um, also on abc.net.au, there is an interactive map if you want to have a look at, uh, at this interactive map on uh, what support is like in various different electorates around Australia for same-sex marriage. And uh, the whole thing is is uh, shaded orange for supporting more supportive or blue if it's less supportive and most of the country is orange um, apart from a huge chunk in central Queensland um, surprisingly <laughs> enough and a little bit in western Sydney as well well, that's an interesting map. You look at me that's when you say central Queensland. <laughs> <laughs> we're trying not to be sensitive. <laughs> You're June to 3CR on Wednesday breakfast and we're about to have Christian Leomel Ruff on the phone to talk about his show Mind the Gap, which talks a little bit about Australia's involvement through Pine Gap and its communication network that eventually evolves. We'll soon find out. Panoply, Panorama, Panpipe, Pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855am digital and 3cr.org.au. Three CR Wednesday breakfast with Kate, Judith, Nick, and Patty, and we're joined on the airwaves with Christian. Are you there, Christian? Yes, I am, Patty B. Thanks for having me, <laughs> Patty B. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, you're on the airwaves to talk about a show, and more importantly, a photo. I think that you took a couple of years ago, and have been taking around the country. Could you just tell us a little bit, or maybe just remind us what Pine Gap is about and why you? chased a photo that is considered to be an illegal shot. Sure. So um, I completed a, a trip I did in 2014 um, hitchhiking around remote parts of Australia for about three months. Um, it was a yeah, really incredible kind of mind-expanding, um, very informative trip for me as, a, I guess, a young adult. Um, and I ended up in Alice Springs um, and... It was pretty much at the end of that trip, I uh, managed to get a photograph, uh, to take a photograph of Pine Gap, um, which for your listeners out there is a joint US-Australian intelligence facility um, that's about 18 k's from Alice Springs on Arunda country in the Northern Territory. Um, it's been there for about 50 years. Um, it was established kind of during the Cold War, after the Second World War, um, and it's essentially a big listening station. It's where um, the United States and its allies can listen in um, to a lot of different signals, um, satellite information, um, and then kind of decipher that information very quickly in real time and kind of act on it in a military capacity. So um, whether it's drone attacks or 
listening in to um, weapons tests of other countries and verifying weapons used in other countries. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a very um, powerful technological place and it's in the middle of the country and it's very top secret. So mm. um, there are things that are known about it and there's been quite a lot of research done. Um, and as time goes on, more and more info comes comes about. Um, Big time. But, yeah. And you timed your release with the 50th anniversary of Pine Gap being in existence and you were in conversation with Richard Tant, I believe, before you went out to take this photo and after and did you not share your photos with him prior when he was writing up a report on information on what was happening in Pine yeah. Gap? Yeah, so he, um, Richard was very helpful in um, giving me a bit of information on um, how to take a photo of Pine Gap and perhaps the best way to approach actually getting there and getting a good view of it. Um, uh, and then after I took the photo, I then showed Richard, um, he was actually writing a, a big report that was published by the University of New South Wales um, on kind of, he's, he's very technically in, into, um, you know, satellite technology and understand from a very technical kind of analytical point of view what technology um, is there and what it's being used for. So he saw this new photograph that I took that was, you know, much higher resolution than anything you can see on Google Maps or on the internet from people using their iPhones. Um, and he basically said, oh, look, I've actually got to rewrite parts of this report because the information in this photograph is um, is unique and that it's so up-to-date. And they're always building new infrastructure there as, you know, warfare and technology continues to expand. Um, so too does the facility itself. That, that's really amazing, the power of one photograph and the information it can provide. Mm. You must have been yeah. very excited when he said that. Yeah, it, well, it kind of validated the project because I wanted... The reason why I kind of took the photograph was because I realised there was a lack of good um, imagery out there of this place, and a lot of it was very outdated from, you know, the 80s or the 90s. Um, and so I thought, well, I basically have to get as close as I can to be able to reveal this place, you know, as, as fully as possible, as comprehensively as possible. And so I think the aim was to really get it to a, a, the broadest audience I possibly could. Um, so I kind of published it in a variety of ways. But one was with Richard in this kind of academic um, report that then kind of filtered through into the major newspapers and Fairfax and the ABC picked it up quite a lot, um, but also presented it in a contemporary art sense and put it into national art prizes and, and have been exhibiting it around the country for just over a year now. So trying to reach, yeah, an art audience, a political audience, um, and then just kind of general readers um, as well. And how do people respond when they see it? Um, I think it was, generally speaking, people were um, just like, oh, wow, what's this? I've never heard of this before. And, and that was great that they'd, you know, something that they'd only maybe heard, oh, yeah, there's some secret place in the desert, kind of like Area 51 or something that, that's top secret, but now I can actually read and, and look at it and find out a bit more um, about what it's actually doing. So most people hadn't heard of it. People that had um, knew what it was immediately and thought, oh, wow, yep, this is nice to see and I'm glad this is in the conversation and this is being talked about. Um, luckily, I didn't really have any really critical or negative feedback. Um, like, I was very hesitant in publishing the photo and actually didn't publish it for a year and a half um, for a range of reasons. 
um, but that was a very unsatisfying time to sit on the photograph. So at the end of the day, after the legal advice I got, I just thought, stuff this, you know what, I'm just going to go for it. <laughs> um, and so the image went out there and I was kind of waiting for the, you know, for something to happen. Um, I was waiting for a knock at the door from ASIO, but um, it didn't happen. And I think, um, yeah, I, I think that just means that I could potentially continue pushing this conversation forward um, into kind of the mainstream Australian consciousness, hopefully. And on that note, you're developing a bit of a channel. You went over and took a fair few photos after the earthquakes and the tsunami in Japan. And just yesterday you were telling me about a potential mission that you're going into Central Australia again with some crew from 3CR. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So those um, works back in 2014 again was looking at Australia's connection with Fukushima and the nuclear disaster that happened there. Um, Australia is one of the largest uranium exporters in the world. Um, and so I went and visited the, the uranium mine in South Australia that, in fact, sells uranium to Japan. And it was quite likely, um, if not, you know, very likely that it was, in fact, Australian uranium in the Fukushima reactors when they melted down. Mm. So this huge public health disaster, um, you know, that's going to affect the world for thousands of years, what they've got brewing in those in those contaminated sites in, in uh, Japan, um, you know, we're a huge part of that, even though we may not think we are, you know, we've directly supplied the fuel that does that kind of damage. So um, that's kind of what the exhibition is about. It's kind of looking at Australia's perhaps darker history um, and, and kind of pretty intense, um, whether, whether it's military or mining or just our kind of colonial history, looking at those perhaps darker sides of our history and kind of pulling them and bringing them to the surface. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I'm hoping to um, exhibit some more work, um, hopefully next year, about Woomera, which is a, a, a very huge um, weapons testing, uh, I guess, like restricted area um, that's about three-quarters of the size of Victoria or thereabouts in South Australia. Um, so it's a pretty astounding size of land that a, a government can just say, look, yep, this is ours, we're just going to you know, blow up things here in this, in this area for as long as we want. It's been there since the 40s. So again, just like, yeah, looking at these, these places in Australia that maybe kind of get swept under the rug a little bit uh, because they're so remote um, and the population there um, you know, is mm. small. Um, so yeah, wanting to talk about these things that aren't talked about enough. Big time. Thank you so much, Christian. Keep pointing that lens and nose in places that it shouldn't be pointed and sharing it with us. <laughs> much appreciated. Thanks so much for your time, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Christian. <laughs> and if you want to see that exhibition and mind the gap in an art setting, you can go to Yering Station out on the Melba Highway in the Yarra Valley, or you can just have a look online and have a look at a few of the reports and get a bit of more information to put it into some context. But coming up, we have some interesting and insightful pieces of audio from the Sydney Marriage Equality Rally, don't we, Judith? Well, I, yes, and I hope everyone finds it so. It certainly was stimulating to be there. Well, normally I, I don't come out to rallies like this, but I thought... At my age, it's about bloody time to support marriage, to give us a choice to be, to feel that we belong 
totally in our communities. We can't create a second class citizens, which is what we're doing in this manner. I'm out here because I've been gay my whole life and it's been illegal to get married my whole life as a lesbian and I'm 24 years old. I just want this to be over and done with and it's also a good excuse to see my community and have some strength in one another while we're being put through this whole plebiscite drama. Oh, about nine years ago we did get married and we stood in front of our friends and our family and our community and um, we asked them to accept our relationship. I came out to make sure that the message gets through that love is love and it's equal. I'm here for my sister and my friends and family. The operative word for me is equality. As someone who's been vilified in his life because he, because he was homosexual, it's time to just stand up and say enough is enough and let's speak up for equality because that's our God-given right. Because I believe in marriage equality. Have you come out to a, a rally before? Oh yes, but not but not one yes. for um, marriage equality. This is the first time I've come out for that. Why have you come out today? I'm out here because I believe in equal rights for all human beings. It's incredibly important that we acknowledge and support the LGBTIQ community in Australia, and I'm here to show my solidarity. I'm Margaret Maiman, I'm the minister at Pitt Street Uniting Church. Our church and a lot of other churches, um, the majority of Christians in Australia, support marriage equality, a change in civil law that will bring justice and love and happiness to so many people. And we think there's nothing to worry about and so much to bless. Despite Australia's current marriage laws and the political shenanigans, we're still married. Just not here in Canada and 24 of our closest allied nations. Chris is my husband, despite the sustained attempts by Australia to deny that reality. Chris and I also got married in 2013. And the most significant thing for us was the sense of community that we enjoyed as a result. People just like you, came out of the woodwork. You wanted to celebrate our relationship. You wanted to let us know that we were equal. You wanted to let us know that we deserve dignity like every other couple. It's one of the reasons why I love Canberra as much as I do. It was that sense of community that got us over the devastation of the High Court voiding our marriage. A couple of weeks ago, I had the absolute privilege of marching in what was back then the biggest demonstration for LGBT rights in this country, 20,000 people in Melbourne. And as reluctant as I am to hand over the title, I think I might have to, because this is the largest demonstration for LGBT rights that this country has ever seen. If you have something to say And it's not worth smiling If you're feeling in pain And it's not worth hiding If you think you might be gay Or different in another way You're perfect just the same
Brucio Wednesday breakfast. You forgot your mic. <laughs> and I forgot my mic. Um, uh, look, I didn't know if I'd be allowed to put that to air, you know, given that they've said that more people came out in Sydney than Melbourne. <laughs> yeah. Excuse I me. I was taking a bit of a risk. Taking a bit of a risk. You could really feel, um, you know, I got the sense of being there, listening to that little package. Um, really well done. Great, great atmosphere. It sounds like it was. It was terrific. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Um, so coming to the end of the show, we'll have a bit of a wrap up, and I guess I just want to quickly share um, some community announcements that we were just talking to Daryl earlier. So just a reminder, um, if you're interested in getting your hands dirty and want to be part of um, King Lake workshops, then they're running through September, um, and you can jump on agarifarm.org um, or Mike Reynolds' tour as well. You can jump on Earthship Biotecture. We'll share all of those on our Facebook page. Um, any other community announcements or events? I think we've shared some through. The yep. If you uh, if if there's anything that you missed throughout the show, please do follow us along on uh, on Facebook. Uh, we are three CR Wednesday Breakfast on Facebook, um, and you'll find information about all the uh, interviews and events that we have spoken about during the show on there. And then just quickly, tomorrow actually is Are You Okay Day. So don't forget to say Are You Okay to your mate and jump online to see what that's all about and how to deal with people that may say no. Thank you for joining us here on Wednesday Breakfast.